The History with Jackson podcast. Hello and welcome back to the History with Jackson podcast. I hope you enjoyed the Catherine of Aragon Festival special series. It was real fun recording that. Now, in this episode, we get back to our regular content and we are talking to Teresa Cole all about her brand new book of Amberley, Women of Power, Formidable Females of the Medieval World. Now, we spoke to Teresa about a small aspect of her book, but we learnt so much about traditional roles of women in medieval society, but also the life of one specific woman. Now, I don't want to give too much away about this episode, but I know you're really going to love it. Now, without further ado, I'll leave us to Teresa. So hello and welcome back to the History with Jackson podcast. Today we welcome historian and author Teresa Cole to discuss her amazing brand new book with Amberley, Women of Power, Formidable Females of the Medieval World. How are you doing, Teresa? Fine, thank you. I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with, with you again. As a caveat, <laughs> we, we had some technical issues, so I'm looking forward to talking about this book. So the first question I want to ask you, and I ask this to all the guests that come onto the podcast, what was the inspiration behind writing this book? Right, well, I've written a fair bit about this period, and mostly about kings and battles and wars and so on, um, but I kept coming across these extraordinary women who were doing things that were completely outside the scope of the normal stereotype of a medieval woman. I mean, if you think of medieval women, you tend to see them as demure little creatures, hands folded, eyes down, doing what they're told, um, arranged marriages, having children, dying young, being replaced. And these women were just not doing that. They were doing their own thing very definitely in a time when women were generally not supposed to be doing things like that. So, um, yeah, they deserve to have their stories told, I thought. Um, and therefore, I thought I'd put them all in a book. I, th- I think that's the nice thing about being a historian is that sometimes you come across those those stories you want to tell whilst mm. doing other research. I think that's a lovely a lovely yeah. route into writing this book. But you've you've touched upon the the stereotype there of the traditional view of what a role of a medieval woman was, and within this book, you've you've as you just told us, you have many am- amazing women who uh, are going against that stereotype, going against what women were expected to do in that time how come and and we've we've touched on you know you're coming across them in your research but what made you what drew you towards these these women and specifically the women within the book well to a large extent they chose themselves they were just so outstanding for their time um for example you've got um matilda of tuscany matilda of canossa also known as um she ruled tuscany at a time when women just didn't rule she had two husbands at different times. Neither of them were bossing her around. She was in charge, um, and what she said went. Um, and she was protecting the Pope from the Holy Roman Emperor, um, leading army, you know, doing incredible things. Again, Melisende of Jerusalem, um, ruling a crusader kingdom. You think of crusaders, knights and armour and battles. And what was a woman doing, being queen of Jerusalem in the middle of all of this? Um, again, leading armies you've got in the 1140s in England, you've got Stephen's Queen Matilda when Stephen had been captured and was imprisoned in Bristol. Stephen's Queen Matilda raised an army, led an army at the time of the anarchy against the Empress Matilda, who was also leading an army. They ended up fighting each other and um, standing off you know, at Winchester uh, one besieging Winchester and the other one besieging the besiegers. So 
just extraordinary things that women just weren't expected to do at the time. And of course, we've got Eleanor, uh, sorry, Emma of Normandy, married two English kings at different times, was the mother of another English king. And then Eleanor of Aquitaine, what can we say about Eleanor of Aquitaine? Married the French king, divorced him, went on crusade, chose a second husband, insisted on marrying him, um, had 10 children. Uh, extraordinary woman, travelled even in her you know, 60s and 70s. She was travelling from England, France to Spain. Um, first of all, she fetched a wife for Richard I, one of her sons. Then she fetched a, another wife for the French king's son. Um, you know, at the time when, you know, by the time women were age 70, well, very few women got to the age of 70, but they weren't expected to be doing anything. She must have been an incredibly tough powerful, determined woman. So, uh, yeah, they, they chose themselves, these women. I mean, having read your book, you know, I totally agree that all these women are just so inspirational and, and, and amazing in, the, in what they're able to achieve uh, in those days. And standing up and protecting the Pope against the Holy Emperor, whilst that was a common thing, it's remarkable that she was able to stand up against such a powerful region and, and emperor. But, unfortunately... We cannot talk at length about all of these women as much as I'd like to. And the one that I'd like to talk about, as you've you've already introduced her, was Emma of Normandy. Now you kind of let us know in a, in a short summary who she was and what she did. But can you can you tell us, you know, where is she from and how has she managed to get into England from Normandy? Okay, so she was born about nine eighty five. Uh, she was the sister of Richard II, who was Duke of Normandy. Uh, incidentally, she's also the great aunt of William the Conqueror. And that the tiny little scrap of connection that William the Conqueror had with England um, comes through his great aunt, Emma of Normandy. She was, uh, she had a, her first marriage was clearly an arranged marriage. It was a political marriage. England was being attacked by Vikings at the time, um, and the Vikings were finding shelter in Normandy. Uh, Normandy, of course, being originally a Viking area. Um, you know, the, the Norman um, were the Norsemen, uh, so Normandy was a Norman area. So all those who were attacking England would go over to Normandy and be given shelter there for the winter. Um, so it, this was a political arrangement between the King of England, the Duke of Normandy, that the, the Duke of Normandy would no longer shelter these Vikings and he would give his sister uh, to marry the King of England as a sort of political seal on the treaty. So her first marriage was uh, definitely an arranged marriage. We know about her from a whole range of different chronicles. There was a, a Norman chronicle um, called The History of the Normans, very biased, very vague about Emma. There's also the Anglo-Saxon chronicle, which again is very brief about Emma. But one of the outstanding things for Emma is she actually uh, commissioned and had written her own story, The Encomium of Emma, uh, written in her lifetime with her version of how all these events fell out. Uh, and one of, again, very biased as far as Emma's, um, Emma's life story is concerned. For instance, it didn't even mention her first husband, who was not the favoured one and not the one that gave her the most power. So uh, yeah, she had her own story written and rearranged history to suit herself in that story. I, I think that's one of my favourite thing about 
medieval chronicles trying to trying to get the provenance and and saying well this person paid for it so you can obviously see that within within that slant but that that first marriage that first husband that she's she's tried to write out of history you know who who was this first husband and, and what and you've already mentioned that it was a a political arrangement a political marriage what role did she play within that marriage and and, the, and its dynamics Okay, so her first husband then, the English call him Ethelred the Unready. Um, officially Ethelred the Unread, which is Ethelred the Badly Advised, um, but generally known as Ethelred the Unready. Uh, he was about 20 years older than Emma, and he'd already had a, another wife and about eight children. Um, so, you know, he didn't need wives and children, but definitely this was a political marriage. She married him in 1002, um, at the time of these Viking attacks. It was um, clearly she was to be given proper status. You know, although this was an arranged political marriage, it was a, a proper marriage. Um, uh, she very, very traditional marriage, though. This, this really wasn't her, her greatest time. Um, she gave him um, two sons and a daughter, Edward, Alfred and uh, God Gifu. Um, and... Really, in the, at this time, most of the time, it was she was a, a traditional wife, younger than her husband, adding to his sons, uh, but pretty much in the background for a time. It was a very lucky marriage for him because it gave him somewhere to run away to when the Vikings were succeeding um, more in England than they had before. So it was fortunate for him, uh, but rather traditional from her point of view. It's always very interesting seeing those those dynamics play out and I, w- I want to touch more upon the the Vikings coming into England then because that's that's a that's a pivotal moment within English history and in, in terms of how the English respond to it but we're looking at Emma so what what does Emma and you've touched upon it there with with Ethelred but what does Emma do with her with her young family in that moment because it must be scary for her yeah okay so there had already been attacks on England. Um, they'd been bought off with the Dane Geld. And as, as Kipling, Kipling put in his, his poem, um, if once you pay him the Dane Geld, you'll never get rid of the Dane. Um, Ethelred did something which didn't help matters. Soon after this marriage with Emma, uh, there was what was known as the St. Bryce's Day Massacre um, in November of 1002, when he ordered the massacre of all the Danes in England. Now, we don't know really how if how much of a massacre that was certainly we know some were killed the ones in the north in in what was known as the the dane law would not have been touched at all Uh, but in in the the southern part of england certainly some were and among those that was killed allegedly was the sister-in-law uh uh, sorry the sister and the brother-in-law of swain forkbeard of denmark so sometime after that um swain forkbeard arrives himself in England with his younger son, Canute, um, who we'll talk about more later on. Um, So that was the first mistake of of Ethelred, was to try and massacre the Danes, uh, which brought a a sort of revenge attack, if you like, into England. Um, His second big mistake was to put a lot of faith into a a character that we know as Edric Striona, Edric the Grasper. Um, Edric Striona was a bit like the Vicar of Bray. Whoever was going to be king of England, he was going to be his right-hand man. So he became a, a, 
an earlderman uh, under the, um, Ethelred. He changed sides at least three times in the course of the various Viking attacks. And at the time of Swain Forkbeard, um, when he'd more or less taken over most of southern England, um, first of all, Emma and her children went back to Normandy to her brother's court. And presumably after a certain amount of her negotiating, um, Ethelred then fled there as well. So there was a, a sanctuary, if you like, for the, the royal family in Normandy at that time. Swain Forkbeard was probably never actually crowned King of England. Um, he generally was seen as ruling from December 1013, um, but very soon after that, even just a few weeks after that, uh, he was killed in a fall from his horse. And um, his young son, Canute, who was probably mid-teens at about that time, had come to England with him, was clearly not going to command the whole of England. He went back to Denmark. And then Athelred was invited back into England. Um, the, the people of England decided they'd invite him back as long as he ruled them better than he did before, uh, was the proviso uh, put on to that. So Athelred and his family returned to England, took up the role again. Again, not doing the best that he could. He decided that he'd take revenge on all those who changed sides. Um, a lot more killing went on, a lot of dis disunity. And then um, the year after that, Canute arrives. Now, we tend to know Canute, the legend of Canute holding back the waves. It almost certainly never happened. Um, but at this time, he was about 20-ish years old. He didn't land in the Danelaw. Um, because he'd deserted them before, he landed in the south of England and again began attacking Ethelred um, all over the south of England. To a certain extent, it was a fairly even battle to start with, but then um, with Edric Striona changing sides regularly, uh, it was clear that Canute was becoming you know, more of a problem and then Ethelred died in 1016. Uh, that left a problem for the English. They'd got Canute controlling quite a lot of the country. Ethelred had various sons, as I've mentioned before. One of them, Edmund Ironside, took up the fight against Canute, was very successful um, in, in defeating him in battle until once again he was betrayed by Edric Striona. And this led to the Deerhurst Treaty signed in Gloucestershire, where having more or less fought each other to a standstill, Canute and Edmund Ironside agreed that they would divide the country between them. Um, shortly after that, mysteriously, uh, Edmund Ironside died. Possibly poisoned, we don't know. There's no, you know, it was regarded as strange at the time. But that left Canute, right? So Canute now has the lot. Um, marches into London, takes over, and um, then you know you have a, a, a Viking ruler in England. Um, Canute is now going to become King of England. Okay, so where does that leave Emma then? Um, Emma's children had probably gone back to Normandy by this time. She, in her encomium, has this delightful fantasy that Canute, having come and become King of England, now desires a wife. 
Now, this probably came as news to the wife that he'd married a couple of years before by the Danish hand-fast method, as they call it. But it was put around that Canute desired a wife. And certainly he did. He said he wanted to marry a wife. The different versions of that, in Emma's encomium, he searched far and wide. He wanted a wealthy, wise, beautiful wife. And he found her in Emma of Normandy. And then there was considerable bargaining took place between them. Uh, what would her status be? Um, you know, how would she be treated and so on? And she eventually decided to marry King Canute. That's her version. The Anglo-Saxon version says Emma was in Normandy. Canute ordered the widow of Ethelred the Unready to be brought to him to become his wife. You take your choice which version you believe. No, I can certainly understand why Emma would perhaps phrase it in that way, um, especially if you're paying for that chronicle to be done. <laughs> but it's remarkable for her. Sure. Yeah. Oh, and it's remarkable <laughs> for her to have outlived two kings as well, you know, during such a yeah. Yeah. period of turmoil for England to be that strong and, and be able to to be that cunning to to get away with it. It's It's fascinating and really quite inspiring. But with that marriage, with that marriage to, to Canute, how important is Emma? Because obviously now she is she's older, she is she is wiser, and she has that experience of England and, and being married to an English king. Well, again, we, we have what it says in the encomium to go along with, but it does generally give the impression it was a very successful marriage. And certainly she became far more important than she had been when she was the younger wife of Ethelred. Um, it, 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 it kind of suggests that uh, it was a happy marriage because it uses the word surprisingly. You know, it, they were surprised at the delight they took in each other. So it suggests that they were a bit wary to start with, but it did actually turn out to be um, a very successful marriage. As you say, she was a bit older. She knew the people. Um, but Canute certainly changed quite rapidly after this. He was, uh, you know, when originally taking over England, he was killing off various you know, other factions um, solidifying his, his position in England. One of those he killed off, incidentally, was Edric Striona. He decided that he'd changed, changed sides often enough. He wasn't going to trust him. Um, but within a couple of years, we, we go from Canute being this wild Viking warrior to becoming a Christian king. And incidentally, the, the marriage to uh, Emma was a Christian marriage. It wasn't a Danish um, Viking marriage. It was a Christian marriage. So within quite a short period of time, he's changed quite dramatically from the way he took over England to the way he was going to rule England. Um, he, again, probably very much to the surprise of the English, decided that they'd be ruled by Edgar's law, the, the law of King Edgar from a few generations before. Um, that was modified, obviously, uh, but it was basically the Anglo-Saxon law, not the Viking law. Um, so, you know, Emma, certainly, this was one of her times when she had a great deal of influence. We find um, 
Canute, for example, going as a Christian king to Rome um, for the coronation of uh, Holy Roman Emperor and being delighted by the way that they welcomed him in Rome and he was treated as an equal with all these other reigning monarchs. Um, so, you know, Canute's image changes completely within a couple of years. Now, there were a couple of archbishops as well. We'd have to give some credit to that. But certainly this, this successful marriage does seem to have a fair amount of influence. And one of the things that we've got which suggests what Emma's influence was is a, a picture from a, a contemporary manuscript which shows the donation of a, um, a, a gilded cross to a church in Winchester. And it, it was given as the gift of Canute and Emma. Now, in medieval paintings, you learn a lot from the placing of the people in the in the picture, the size of them, who's at the top, who's at the bottom, and so on. In this particular picture, okay, you've got Canute with his hand on the cross, but you've got Emma there at the other side, touching the cross, the same size as him, standing on the same level as him, suggesting that she was given the same um, influence, if you like, the same respect as, as Canute was. So it does suggest that she did have a considerable amount of influence during Canute's reign in England, which was a pretty peaceful, successful reign, despite what they say about him holding back the tide. <laughs> it's it's remarkable how someone can have such an effect on the way that an individual is seen and, and received by people, but also in the way that they rule. And and, and like you said, that, that switch to, to Edgar's law overtaking Viking law is is a big change for that medieval period and, and a, a, a very symbolic movement as well. But as all things in medieval England, unfortunately, the king dies. King Canute yeah. dies. How does Emma use and demonstrate her power after Canute's death to, to intervene in the crisis that, that ensues? Yeah, she certainly tried. <laughs> She wasn't quite as successful as she would like to have been because there were um, sons of this earlier marriage that Canute had got. Um, she had had a son with Canute, half a Canute. He'd spent quite a lot of his young life in Denmark, possibly in a hostage exchange with um, somebody who was causing trouble at the time, um, whose son stayed in England. So half a Canute was not in England at the time when Canute died in in. Um, 1035. But in England was one of Canute's other sons by his handfast wife that he'd had earlier on. Um, he'd had two sons then. One was Swain, who'd been sent off to try and rule Norway and had failed. Um, and the other one was called Harold, and we know him as Harold Harefoot. Um, presumably he was a, a swift runner. Um, Harold Harefoot was probably about 18 at the time um, when um, when Canute died. And he was in England and he claimed the throne. His mother was probably very much a match for Emma. She was determined that her son Harold was going to have the throne of England. Emma was determined that her son Arthur Canute was going to have the throne, uh, but he was not there and not able to claim it. So there was a sort of fudged agreement originally that. Harold would hold it until half the Canute could come back. That didn't last very well. Um, half the Canute and his mother were quite determined that they were going to rule the lot. So then we have this letter 
which is only mentioned in the encomium. And it's quite surprising it is mentioned because it doesn't reflect very well on Emma. She has two sons of her own who've been in Normandy all this time. She hasn't seen them for 18 years, right? but they're there in Normandy. And all of a sudden she sends them this letter. And the letter says, the people of England would rather one of you came over to rule in place of Harold Hereford. Now, the encomium says the letter was a forgery. And for some time it was believed it was a forgery. But now the general idea is, uh, it was quoted sort of verbatim in this encomium, the general idea is it was actually sent by Emma. It was a genuine letter to try and, if you like, keep her, her power by having one of these sons come over to England. Uh, the eldest son was Edward. He came as far as Portsmouth, had a quick look around, decided he was going to have uh, no support at all in England and hot-footed it back to Normandy. The other son was Alfred, who possibly was a little more bold than Edward. He actually landed in England near Dover was met by Earl Godwin, who'd been a right-hand man of Canute, and at the time was apparently supporting Emma to try and have one of her sons um, become King of England. So Alfred was met by uh, Earl Godwin. He was lodged at an inn, um, you know, stay there overnight, we'll carry on in the morning. By the time the morning came, he'd been captured by the forces of Harold. He was then imprisoned, taken up to... Um, East Anglia, tortured, blinded, which was what you did to your prisoners in those days so that they couldn't be a nuisance in future. But he was blinded so savagely, apparently, that he died. Um, so that was Alfred paid the price for trying to become King of England. Uh, Emma apparently wept copiously at this death. Um, she possibly was weeping not only for her son, but also for the fact that Earl Godwin had obviously deserted her and gone over to Harold, who he then served for a while. So um, Emma then was sent away um, to Normandy. In fact, not to Normandy, because her brother had died then. She ended up in um, in Boulogne, um, um, was stayed there for some time afterwards uh, while Harold was ruling in England. So she did make a bid for power then. She tried to get one of her sons on the throne. It failed, and she then had to leave the country for a while. Eventually, though, um, Harold died, and he died quite young, um, died in 1040. And by that time, Harthur Canute had sorted things out in Denmark, had arrived um, to meet his mother, and he then did come over to England and did claim the throne of England. And once again, Emma is in the ascendancy because uh, Arthur Canute never married, there was never a Queen of England, so while he was ruling, she was the First Lady with all the power and influence that she'd wanted to have before. So yeah, she got herself back again. I think I call her in the book the Great Survivor. Um, she certainly was. So that, that Great Survivor, is, it's, a it's a tale of a, an awful lot of cunning, to be honest, to be able to, to manipulate or try and manipulate situations that to assert her power, but also to assert her son's inheritance. But yet again, as the story of medieval England goes, Arthur Canute is, it probably goes the same way as his father. So can you tell us what happens after Arthur Canute and, and how does Emma move on and attempt to assert herself again? 
Right. Well, it's, it's strange that none of um, Canute's sons lived beyond the age of 25. Um, he wasn't that old himself when he died. But, you know, whether it was lifestyle or whatever, half the Canute apparently ate copiously and drank copiously and died of a, a probably of a stroke in the middle of a banquet. Um, what he had done, though, and again, this is Emma's manoeuvring, is he had brought over from Normandy Edward. Now, whether she saw that Arthur Canute wasn't going to last very long and she was lining up the next contender, um, yeah, she'd brought Edward over. Um, he hadn't been given any specific role, but he was there on the spot. He was a son um, of the English line and he was immediately um, acclaimed as King of England. But... <laughs> Uh, this is where Emma gets her comeuppance. Edward was probably her least loved son. Um, she'd ignored him for years, done nothing at all for him, um, apart from this belatedly bringing him over to England. And this was probably Edward's getting revenge on his mother. Uh, within a very short time, we find that Emma's had her lands and her goods taken from her. Um, she has been stripped of all her powers. The suggestion is that having used the royal treasury as she liked um, when Arthur Canute was king and, and made appointments here, there and everywhere as she chose. She was trying to carry on doing that when Edward was king and he wasn't having any. Although it is interesting that in, in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, it does say that when he went to strip her of her treasury uh, and all her lands and goods, he did have three other earls to back him up. <laughs> so even then, it's like he wasn't quite sure he was capable of, of dealing with his own mother. Um, but yeah, she that really was her, uh, her, her downfall there. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says that he took her lands um, and her goods because she'd been too hard on him when he was younger. So, you know, <laughs> there you go. That's Emma's downfall. She lived another nine years after that. She did get some lands back, some property back, but never had the influence that she'd had before um, once Edward was king. No, I can I can certainly understand with the life that Emma lived why Edward has gone to his mum with with a few other people just to go. <laughs> okay, mum. <laughs> so I can understand that. I can see where that's coming from. Now, unfortunately, our interview with Teresa Cole on her book "Women of Power: Formidable Females of the Medieval World" had some technical and recording issues, so we're only able to release this first half of the interview with. Teresa about Emma of Normandy. However, the rest of her book does touch on Matilda of Tuscany, Matilda the Queen, Stephen's Queen, and Matilda the Empress during the English period of history called the Anarchy. Then we also have Millicent of Jerusalem and her family. And of course, you cannot talk about medieval women without touching on Eleanor of Aquitaine. Now, the link to buy yourself a copy of Women of Power is in the description below. I thoroughly recommend going to get yourself a copy of this book because it really touches on an area of history which we are starting to learn more about. So go and grab yourself a copy of Women of Power and if you want to go and interact with Teresa, there will also be a link to her Amberley profile page below. So thank you very much for listening to this episode of History of Jackson. If you do enjoy any of the content that we create here, either through the blog, the podcast, on our social media, please do consider heading to the Buy Me A Coffee profile in the description below or heading to History of Jackson Plus on Apple Podcasts. By subscribing and supporting us through these mediums, you can help History of Jackson to continue to do what we do here. Now, without further ado, I will bid you goodbye and 
and tell you that you're going to have an awesome episode next week and I hope that you enjoy it because it really is a stellar one.